Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. I'm Brian Kiley. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Pastor Lance Hahn. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about sharing your faith in a post-Christian culture. When it comes to sharing our faith, many of us are nervous or uneasy. Why is that? If what we have to share is truly good news, what is preventing us from wanting to share it? Is it possible that evangelism can take on many forms? And is it possible that God has equipped us to share our faith in a way that works with our personality? These questions and more on this episode of Engaging Culture. Well, hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 18 of the Engaging Culture Podcast. Like I said, my name is Brian Kiley, joined by... The one and only Pastor Lance Hahn. Lance, how are you? Good. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening and being a part of this. We get uh, different people that touch base with us and say we love the Engaging Culture podcast. So to all of you, hi. We're not really sure why you love it, but we're glad that you do. I think it has something to do with you, Pastor Brian. You know, I wasn't going to say it, but I'm glad that you did. So anyway, we are having a conversation about sharing your faith in a post-Christian culture. And before we get into that, Lance, let's talk for a minute about this concept of post-Christian because a lot of people might get hung up on that term or might just have questions about what does it mean. So can we talk for a minute? What do you? What do we mean when we say post-Christian? Yeah, I think um, now somebody is going to argue whether or not it was ever Christian. Um, and, and that's a fair argument. We can get into that. But post-Christian basically means that at a prior time, America was more grounded or founded or in the agreement that we had a national religion of Christianity. Post-Christian means that we're now into an era where that is not the main groove that everybody agrees with. This is not the 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 national religion. Now people would say we are nationally a secular uh, country. Um, what, what about you? I mean, you, you've read plenty of stuff on what post-Christian means and doesn't mean, but right. Well, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, I, I am in the camp of America was never a Christian nation. America was founded on the idea of religious liberty. So while obviously Christianity played a large part in the life of the founders and everybody else, I am of the opinion that, uh, America has, uh, ha- is, and always has been a secular country. Now, that being said, Christianity was certainly the dominant social influence for a long period of time. And for a significant part of American history, Christianity and being American has been more or less synonymous. And Christianity has been the dominant cultural influence. We see a lot of God language from our leaders in different arenas. And uh, and that has had benefits and some challenges. The benefits uh, are, for example, there has been very little... Uh, active persecution of Christians in American history relative to some other parts of the world. I'm not saying there hasn't been any, but there has been relatively little, again, compared to some other places, and and we'll get into that perhaps in a little bit. The challenge of that, of course, is that uh, state religion never really works. You look at what's gone on in Europe, you look at what's gone on in some other places where Christianity was sort of melded with culture, and it never really worked because Christianity was just sort of assumed that there was nothing distinctive about being a Christian. It became synonymous with being English or German or, in some cases, American. And we've seen what's gone on in Europe, and in a lot of ways that's kind of started to happen here in the United States where because Christianity was just sort of assumed for so long that, again, it had some benefits, but it also had some challenges in decreases in discipleship, decreases in evangelism, uh, a decrease in people really taking their faith seriously. Uh, and now, now we're in a place where Christianity is not the dominant cultural influence. So in that sense, we are post-Christian. And But that, even that, I would not say that is entirely a bad thing because Christians are beginning to regain a sense of distinctiveness. It means something to be a Christian. Christianity is not simply synonymous with being American. America has sort of embraced a much more multicultural uh, ethos, and that is not without its challenges, but a benefit of that, in my opinion, is again, being a Christian means something. It is distinctive. But for Christians, then, we have to just learn how do we live in a society where Christianity is no longer the dominant social influence. Does that make sense? Yeah. So a couple questions on that. One one of those is, 
are we saying that it's post-Christian because we are Christians? And, and what I mean by that is if you asked a Muslim, is America Muslim or is it Christian? They would say, man, this is heavily dominated Christian. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's everywhere. It's in all your stuff. The fact that we're playing Christmas music, the fact that we're doing all these things in malls and shopping areas, right? I think other people would say it is heavily Christian in its culture. Um, But I think where we cause a difference is is you are describing – so for a true Christian – we see it very different than just calling yourself Christian. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that as far as we are still heavily dominant people that call themselves Christian, right. but I think that for me, when I say that we are a post-Christian culture, I mean that the primary influences shaping now and moving forward are less influenced by Christ Yeah. Than other things. So, for example, I I think that um, as much as our founding fathers, you know, we get into all this debate and we're going to have some emails coming in uh, with people with this debate over were we a Christian (laughs) nation? How Christian were they? Yes. But here's the thing primarily, a lot of them were deists. Right. Okay. So, what it was founded on is a lot of the concept of God. Now, a deist and a Christian are not always the same thing. Right. Now, a deist is the idea that there is a God, but he's not very involved with humanity. Now, that's very different than Christianity. Christianity has a heavy interpersonal, indwelling Holy Spirit concept. All right. Now, having said all that, um, our whole legal system and the Ten Commandments are interwoven. Like, Mm -hmm. there was the founding and all that stuff. Now, I don't believe that those are the primary influencers today— and the laws of tomorrow and the guiding of tomorrow is not, in my opinion, primarily emphasized on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Right. There, there are secular influences. Right. So, I mean, that's how I would kind of split it out a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's certainly valid. From a, I mean, it, it is undeniable that sort of the Judeo-Christian ethic has influenced uh, America and continues to do so. And, and that is, generally speaking, I think, you know, b- culturally beneficial. But you're right that, uh, that there are a lot more voices, a lot more worldviews. We're much more pluralistic right. in terms of our uh, cultural influences. And that brings with it, I think, honestly, for Christians, I think that bring, brings with it a series of of benefits and challenges. But as we get into this idea of sharing your faith, h- how does the fact that this is a post-Christian world impact the way that a person might go about sharing Jesus with somebody else? Yeah. So one, one last clarification in, in answering that question that I think that is critical is it's different to be in a pre-Christian culture than a post-Christian culture. So, for example, let's say you um, are doing some work with the Aboriginal people in Australia. Mm-hmm. They've never been introduced to Christianity. That would be called a pre-Christian yeah. environment. Post-Christian means been there, done that, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, in other words, there is stuff already out on the table that causes people to have assumptions. So the Aborigines are going, okay, I'm listening to you clear as if it's brand new to me. You're bringing in new thoughts that I will process through my worldview right now. Everybody processes it through their worldview. When you're in a post-Christian, it means I've analyzed it and I've chosen yes or no already. I've had some engagement with it. I already have specific thoughts on it. And I do or don't like pieces of it. Okay, that is a post-Christian. So in answering, how do we evangelize? What difference does it make? It makes a massive difference because what our job is as missionaries in the world, Mm -hmm. as being missional people, is the first thing that you do as a missionary is you exegete your culture. You figure out what is my culture really doing and how then does Jesus interact with that? Yeah. Well, our culture, as a post-Christian culture, when you exegete it, there is a bunch of assumptions and walls and gaps and misunderstandings. You have to do deconstruction before you can do the construction 
of Christian faith sharing. Now, you say deconstructing in terms of deconstructing and exegeting culture. Can you maybe break those terms down a little bit more for some of our listeners? Oh, what do you mean by those? Yeah, absolutely. So exegeting is a, um, a term that you use about kind of digging stuff out of the Bible. So, yeah. so exegeting is also a word that means to pull out. So you're looking at what are all the pieces that make it up, and then you're trying to, almost like a radio, you would deconstruct. So when I say the word deconstruct, I mean to pull apart before you put it back together. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a fancy way of saying that. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a that's an important clarification, and and certainly the uh, the ability to deconstruct uh, an exegete culture is is crucial for for relating to the culture really in any in any regard. I think that your distinction between pre Christian and post Christian is really interesting because in a pre Christian culture, I mean, you're right. There are there is a set of cultural assumptions that exist certainly. But there is, generally speaking, a lack of awareness or any sort of assumptions regarding Christianity in particular. There might be assumptions about monotheism. There might be. There's obviously going to be assumptions about spirituality or lack of spirituality in general. But there's not going to be much awareness of much of the basics or much of the foundations of what we would call Christian theology or Christian worldview. It's fascinating to me in a post-Christian world. I mean, you talk about... We've seen it, we've analyzed it, and we've rejected it. I think in some cases that's true. I think in other cases it's just, I don't even know that it's gone to the level of analysis. I think in a lot of cases it's it's awareness without knowledge or it's assumptions based on the passing mm-hmm passing, you know, interactions, like even things like, for example, I know a lot of stuff has come out recently that, um, so with different elections that have happened, they've talked about, you know, X percent of evangelicals have done this and that. Well, there are lots of articles that I've read that have come out recently saying, well, most of these people that are saying they're evangelicals aren't right. (laughs) Like they have, they're just sort of, you know, people who consider themselves kind of vaguely religious. And, and because of that, I think a lot of, a lot of people that would maybe be secular or or of a non-christian worldview they all they see is oh well this is how evangelicals are and it's like well actually maybe some of them are but a lot of them aren't and a lot of people that are calling themselves you know anyway i don't want to belabor that point but i think it comes from how you see christianity or evangelicalism portrayed in the media how you see maybe you know a random interaction with somebody maybe you see somebody being you know uh, extra boisterous or flamboyant about their faith in a different way. You know, so you know what I'm saying? There's this awareness, but I don't know that there's a lot of actual knowledge with that awareness, which is, I don't know, which creates kind of an interesting cultural dynamic. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's spin this around a little bit. So in my, um, in my seminary days, one of the classes and courses that I had to go through was called world religions. You mm-hmm. have to go through and you have to analyze. Now, you're doing some analysis. Are you doing a full in-depth analysis? Ah, I don't know. I mean, how long does it take to really get to know a world religion? Yeah. Um, but in doing so, when we were analyzing um, Islam mm-hmm. and the Muslim faith, um, we you know we went to a, a mosque and interacted with an imam there who was their their religious leader. But in in doing some analysis of the Quran, what was interesting was how Muhammad refers to Christians. He calls Christians and Jews people of the book, meaning the Bible, right? So people of the book. To make a long story short without getting all into it, here's the bottom line. He had a really weird version of Christianity he was introduced to, Hmm. and he rejected it, in my opinion, rightfully, Mm -hmm. because the group that he interacted with in that area of the world at that time was a sect of Christianity that primarily taught that the Trinity was Father, Son, and Mary. Hmm. Okay, so he was heavily uh, f- violated with the idea that there was God and a woman that was a human that was part of God's triune. He was like, "This is, doesn't work." Mm-hmm. Well, we would agree. We would <laughs> like, agree. You're right. That doesn't work. We would say that doesn't work. <laughs> and so his rejection of it. If you really dig into it, you go, hold on. He actually didn't get to hear Christianity. He got yeah. to hear a weird version of it. Yeah. And so his rejection was appropriate. And so you go, is he post-Christian or pre-Christian? Has he ever really been exposed to real Christianity? Yeah. So in that same way, people are going through it right now. Yeah. You walk into somebody up on the street and their aunt was Christian 
and called herself a Christian, went to church all the time, and she was the one that was the meanest at all the religious events. She was the one that was telling everybody what to do with their lives. She was the one that had a whole secret life. She was the one, you know what I mean? Yeah. Have they really engaged with Christianity? Yeah. Or did they engage with such a messed up version of it? Can we even say that they've seen the real thing? Yeah. And often, I mean, I know in my personal life, engaged with all sorts of people who have had such unhealthy experiences with Christianity that there's so much there's so much deconstruction that has to go on there before they can even really begin to engage with God in a, in a healthy manner. I'm sure you have as well. And certainly yes. we see those sorts of folks show up at Bridgeway all the time. People the that time. have had uh, various unhealthy uh, experiences and are just trying to figure out, you know, who is God really? <laughs> and and it's so interesting, even if I've, again, I've had situations in my personal life where I've come alongside people that are really struggling with their faith and the way that they describe God to me, I say to them, yeah, you're, well, you and I agree on one thing, the God you're describing does not exist. <laughs> You know, yes. And so we need to talk about who is God, who is Jesus as the Bible reveals him to be and and begin to start building there. But before you can even begin that process, a lot of times there's deconstruction that has to happen, which is challenging. I, I think some people forget and, and maybe maybe there's a portion of them that really think they completely live out what God is like. But I think most people forget the phrase, you're the only Bible some people will ever read. In other words, they're going to completely define God and Christianity by your activity, mm-hmm. by your words. Mm-hmm. You may be the only Christian they ever meet. So they make a full assessment off your life. That is why the Lord talks about, hey, we got to be alert. We got to be aware. Listen, man, you got to live intentionally. Mm-hmm. Most of what um, I, I would love to bring to the table today about in terms of sharing our faith is really going to come down to intentionality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a biblical concept of he's going, listen, you are my witnesses, period. Right. You being my witnesses, meaning everybody's watching you. Mm-hmm. The world's watching you. Satan and his team's watching you. The angels are watching you. Everybody's watching you. You're already evidence of me. Mm-hmm. Now, you're either going to be that on accident or you're going to be that on purpose. Right. I need you to be intentional. Right. Yeah. So let's begin to talk about that then. If we're going to be intentional about sharing our faith, we want to talk about, okay, how do we share our faith in a way that's healthy, in a way that makes sense, in a way that's right, a way that's effective? I mean, I'm kind of throwing out a lot of a lot of terms here. Why don't you just speak into that a little bit? What are some some basics we can keep in mind if we want to be people out in the workplace, out in our recreational activities, in our families, who want to share our faith in a healthy, effective, loving manner? What are some principles we can keep in mind as we seek to do that? Uh, so I'll, uh, on top of intentionality, I'm going to give you two words. I'm going to give everybody two words that you need to keep in the back of your mind at all times when you're sharing your faith. And the first one is purposeful. The second one is natural. Purposeful and natural. Uh, I believe these lead to intentional sharing of your faith. Here's what I mean. When you enter into a conversation about Christ, you cannot impart what you do not possess. In other words, you can't give away what you don't have. Either you are truly transformed by Jesus Christ or you're not. If you're not truly transformed by him, you cannot share that with somebody else. You will end up making it up, fabricating it, faking it, concocting something that doesn't even exist, but basically you're selling a sham or a guess. So when I say be natural, what I mean is that if you've truly been transformed, you can only share that. So you share your story. When you start going beyond all that and you start telling them all these things that you don't really know, we're going to walk them into some difficulty. So be natural. One of the biggest problems that the world has with Christians today, at least in America, is seeing people that are either fake, inconsistent, acting like they have it all worked out, but mostly it's they're awkward. They're not natural. (laughs) Like every, their interaction is stiff and it's rigid and it starts talking about things that they would never talk like that in any other series of life. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, people shifting into old English when they suddenly start talking about God. Right. You know, um, if you remember, Jesus said, thy will 
be done. And you're like, okay, no one ever uses. Like, I've never used that word in my life. Right. So why? <laughs> so my first thing is be natural. That means you have to be transformed and then be natural. Be who you are. That is the number one attractive thing because what what non-believers need is a real person to interact with. They don't right. need fake. They don't need a book. They don't need any, they need a real person. The second one is purposeful. And I think this is where most of us as Christians fail, which is that we're not paying attention to the fact that we're on. And that means that when you're in a conversation, are you aware and alert that there are opportunities happening all the time? So for example, when you're, let's say you're a lady and your girlfriend comes up to you and she's like, man, my heart is broken. You can operate in that and just be on one level, which is like, oh, honey, I'm super sad for you. I'm sorry about that. Or you can go, God is at work here. Now, once again, what's the other one? Be natural. Don't suddenly go, you know, yeah. speaking of your heartbreaking, God's heart breaks over your sin every day. You understand? Like automatically you're like, okay, you just botch that and you just hurt everybody. Okay, please don't do that. But what happens is you say, listen, as I'm having an opportunity to care for and love on my friend naturally, I think that God also is doing something to where I'm allowed to use my gifts of the Lord, which is compassion, yeah. kindness, love, stuff like that. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I, I think that uh, the recognition that God is at work in all of these different environments that we might find ourselves in, I think is really important. I had a guy stop me recently who said how, you know, he had, he had he'd worked in a different, different field and had thought, boy, it would sure be fun to, you know, go and do work for the Lord and work in a church. And he said, well, what I do is, you know, just something with, you know, I, I'm not going to say the field, but I just do something in, you know, such and such field, uh, sort of with the implication that, you know, that's not really something that I can do for the Lord. And I didn't really know this guy that well, so I didn't, didn't react real strongly to that but in my mind I'm thinking you've got to be kidding me like you can you can serve the Lord in any field and if anything you know you're around people who don't know the Lord all day you're interacting with your colleagues your customers all of this stuff there's opportunity for ministry everywhere and I think beyond that there's opportunity for ministry by the way that you do your job with excellence I think that a lot of times when it comes to sharing our faith in the environment that we're in you talk about kind of the idea of, okay, you know, you, I forget the exact words you used a moment ago, but you're talking about the idea you're the only Christian that someone else might come in contact with. I think that what, what I try to keep in mind for myself and, and what I would hope our listeners would keep in mind as well is that evangelism begins with the quality of your life. So when you go to work, are you excellent at your job? Not in a cheesy kind of trying to uh, you know, get ahead at the expense of everybody else or a disingenuous and mean kind of way, but do you do your job in an honorable and respectful manner? Do you care about your colleagues? Do you, uh, are you respectful to those who are above you? Do you care for those who are beneath you? Do you treat your customers uh, in an honorable manner? Are you the sort of person that your colleagues look to you and say, that is somebody I respect? Because if that's not happening, you're going to have a very hard time when you try to shift into conversations about the Lord. Or even I would say in a lot of cases, if you just go like guns blazing, going to just, you know, first words out of your mouth, Jesus, before you even have the opportunity to build some rapport. I'm not saying God doesn't ever work in those scenarios, but I think you're going to have a, you're going to have a hard time. In a lot of ways, the quality of your life lays the groundwork for conversations. And what I find to be interesting as a pastor, I mean, you know this, obviously, Lance, like it just changes the dynamic of a conversation once anybody knows what you do for a living. And it's, it just is what it is. So, um, so it's interesting to me. I find that as I'm out in the community coaching my kids' sports teams or just in my neighborhood talking to neighbors, it's kind of, we cross that threshold of, oh, so what do you do for a living? And it just changes things. Every time. Right? It just does. But I find that as I'm able to, as I build relationships, say, for example, as a basketball coach, who I now I have the same guy I've coached with for a few seasons, he's not a believer, you know? 
I can see the awkwardness on his face as he asks me. I saw him yes, I saw him on Sunday. You know how how did how did services go today? Right. You know, and he's it's like, trying to be nice. Like, he's trying to be nice, and he just doesn't really want to ask. Like we're cool, like we're buddies, but you know, just that, that that's even a, a beginning of a conversation. And what is he seeing? He's seeing I care about the kids. He's saying that I'm a you know at least somewhat competent coach, as you know best I can, and that there's relational depth coming there that who knows what what conversations that's going to lead to down the road same thing in my neighborhood same thing in in different environments but i just i take this very seriously that the quality of my life leads to respectability in conversation so that even if somebody is not interested in the lord at at the very least they're not going to say oh well he's just some religious weirdo oh he's just a christian nut job or whatever that the very least they're going to say he's an honorable person who does his job well who keeps his word who does these things who treats me with respect and you know and who knows what god might do to lead that into a place where we can actually have a comfortable conversation about what's most important yeah uh, yeah that's powerful and i and i think that you know we'll we'll turn the corner here in a moment to bounce off what you just said i believe you said evangelism begins with the quality or condition of your life I think it begins there. It cannot end there, and right. we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a moment. But let me let me highlight one other piece, and that is, please do not assume everyone in America is post Christian. Yeah. So, for example, I got into this conversation. This kind of caught me off guard, to be honest with you, because you have to be reminded of this every once in a while. I got into a conversation with a young man named uh, Matthew the other day. Incredibly brilliant young man. Um. And I say, young man, he's twenty-seven. So he's not—he's not a little kid. Not my son. It was not your son. <laughs> Who no. is six? Yes, he is six. No, um, brilliant young man. And he told me this story. He grew up um, with no believers around, knew nothing about it. He grew up um, in a very poor area, and as there, he was in a single mom, never knew his dad. Well, here's what's interesting about it: is he said. I found out later in life there was a thing called the Ten Commandments, and he was stunned. And he's like, these yeah. are brilliant. Now, I don't – the idea that somebody in America would not know that there was a thing called the Ten Commandments, yeah. and it revolutionized his life. He ended up getting saved by learning about a thing called the Ten Commandments. And it was just so odd to me that he can live in our nation and have no contact, at least that that made sense to him. It may yeah. have been around him, but it, and he said, I wish somebody would have told me as a child or earlier that there was such a thing as the Ten Commandments. Well, now, I would never go out and go, a bunch of people need to know there's <laughs> Ten Commandments. We we automatically assume everybody knows that. I mean, it's on buildings. You know, well, now they're all being removed. But right. we used to have it in front of courthouses. I mean, we've had all the. You assume that's old school. Yeah, it's you interesting how know. post-Christian culture creates pre-Christian people. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. So just because we're post-Christian, don't assume everybody has bad baggage. Yeah. Some people have no baggage. Yeah. They just don't know. And it was listen, looking at his face. He already has kind of this sweet face, right? Uh-huh. But thinking about him as a as a younger man, not knowing yeah. and really wanting to know, but no one told him. Yeah. That just is crazy to me yeah. because we always assume everyone's resistant. Mm-hmm. And his whole point was, I would have loved to know. Yeah, his heart was ready. You know, and of course, he ended up going down some bad roads. But when the Lord caught his attention in a very significant way, I mean, he was all in. He gave his life over to the Lord. His testimony is so beautiful, and he's such a great man of God. But anyway, just the idea that your neighbor may not know. Yeah, and I think I I, I fall into this trap all the time, and I think I have for a long time, and I sort of try to get myself out of it, is I have this assumption in my mind that any non-believer I talk to is going to have all of this sort of negative baggage that they yep. have to work through. And that's just, and that's just not the case. It, it just isn't that you're right. There are people who just don't know. There are people who, uh, have little, if any assumptions about Christianity and who are, are curious and God is working on their hearts and they don't even realize it. Um, but, uh, and you know, in a sense, I, I, I have times where I just sort of need to get over my incorrect assumptions of, of, of others. Now, when we talk about sharing our faith, 
kind of one of the reasons that maybe we wouldn't is because of what I just mentioned. We assume people already know and they've rejected it or they've got all this baggage or, you know, and whatnot. What are some other things that prevent us from, from sharing our faith in, a, in an effective way? I, I think, uh, well, for me, I guess it would be things like, you know what, it's not a big deal. There are an awful lot of Christians, um, and I find it happening in myself, where you lose sight of the importance of coming to a knowledge of the faith. So, for example, I grew up breathing in Jesus Mm -hmm. in a Christian household. I have no normal alarms in my mind that say there are unsaved around you. Because to me, it's so natural and so normal. I don't know the fear of hell in that sense. I don't know what separation from God means. So I don't have a natural reminder that it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. I just assume everyone's going to heaven. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you don't engage with it. I think the other one um, that is laziness and apathy, which you know dang well it's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you do have alarms, you just don't care enough about people to do anything about it. That's pretty harsh, but I think we need to examine our hearts if that's part of us. But I would say the number one reason why people do not share their faith more is fear. Now, there's a variety of reasons about what we can be fearful about, but flat out, it is fear, and we can dive into that more. But do you have any other things beyond those three yeah, uh, certainly fear is a big one. I, I also think that perhaps we have defined what does it mean to share your faith uh, narrowly. Uh, for yeah. example, there are, I mean, I remember in college, I mean, there are a m- number of kind of on-campus ministries that that teach you to engage more or less total strangers in yes. spiritual conversations and, and walk them through different things and present the gospel and all that. I want to be very clear. I am not at all saying that is bad. God has used that in a lot of people's lives. And I, and I think for people that are gifted to be able to do that, it's fantastic. Yes. I'm going to be real honest. That is not me. It's just not me. It's not me. Then it wasn't me now. The idea of just going up to a total stranger and having that conversation is just not me. And But does that mean that I'm not called to share my faith? No, of course nope. it doesn't. And so I think maybe some, some of us, we tend to think that sharing your faith has to be, okay, total stranger, we're talking about Jesus within 30 seconds. It has to mean, okay, every parent I chat with at the park, if I don't invite them to church, the conversation was a failure. Uh, or it has to be, you know, sometimes you're in public places and you see people with signs and bullhorns and all of that stuff, you know, that it has to be, it has to be that. And it just doesn't. It can be the cultivation of a relationship with a coworker who you begin to share, uh, you know, you begin to spend time with them and share about your life. Now, there is still courage and boldness and you have to overcome your laziness and apathy in those environments. But I think as somebody who definitely has a strong introvert side in certain environments, I have a heart for those who are like me and I want to help them see, you know what, there are ways that God can still use you to share your faith with others, even if the idea of a conversation with a stranger or, uh, or, you know, or something like that completely terrifies you that there are opportunities as well, that actually evangelism looks a lot of different ways and you just need to learn, you know, are there ways to step out of your comfort zone? Sure, there are, but there's also ways that you can thrive and be effective in evangelism within your comfort zone and within the way God has made you. And it's worth taking the time to discover that in my opinion. No, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, you know, just just as a side note, we should probably put this more in order, and I should talk about this later, but I won't. <laughs> I'll right. just completely derail what we're trying to say. Let's get into it now. Um, and that is, uh, what I love about what you just said is is evangelizing within personality types. Yep. Um, so my mom is super quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, she is one of those uh, in a group she just wants to kind of kick back, sit in the chair, and watch her kids interact. Mm-hmm. The idea of being in, uh, like, imagine a, a Christmas picture where all the kids are playing with toys and everyone's laughing and joking, and there is a pat- uh, a matriarch of the family sitting back with a beaming smile on her face like, this is my family. I don't need to say anything. I'm not directing anything. I'm enjoying my family. That is the essence of my mother. Yeah. Okay. She's that woman. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's intriguing. I just got into this conversation with her the other day is that I said, mom, here's the weird thing about you. 
I have it's many. A nice way to start a conversation. Isn't it a great way? way? I'm actually rather <laughs> rude in a variety of ways. Go but, on. But thank you. Um, and what I said to her is, I said, Mom, here's the weird thing about you. I have people say to me, Your mom is amazing. Now, the reason why everyone goes, Well, you, people are just being nice to you because they know you're a pastor and you're. They want to comment on your mom. My mom goes to our church. Mm -hmm. She's part of our prayer ministry. A lot of people don't know she's my mom, right, because she's so quiet. But here's the thing. Why do they all use the same phrase? Your mom is amazing. Because they use that phrase about people that are super charismatic and like they would go, man, that person is amazing. Mm -hmm. And because they're awed by something. That's usually what is triggering that word. Otherwise, they would say, oh, I've met your mom. She's sweet. Oh, I've met your mom. She's nice. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've met your mom. She's quiet. There's a million other descriptions that match my mom. But what tends to come out is your mom is amazing. Here's the other weird thing. I said, I go, mom, people say your impact upon their life is significant. They say that a lot, Mm -hmm. more so than a lot of people I know that are outward evangelists. Hmm. Okay, so here's my whole point. My mom is very quiet, and she has made tremendous impact on people, has done tons of evangelism, and rarely opened her mouth in that way, in an awkward way, Mm -hmm. but she just lives out who she is, and people have been transformed. I think that is legit evangelism. That's powerful. That's powerful. Absolutely. And I, and I hope that's an encouragement. I mean, that gosh, even hearing that, it encourages me. It's an encouragement to all of us to, to realize, you know what, uh, you don't have to be the loudest person in the room. It's you're not selling Jesus. You're not That's trying right. to close deals here. You know that it's the idea of authentically living out a life of faith, being ready, willing, and able to to demonstrate and declare your faith when the opportunity presents itself. To listen deeply, to love fully, and when you do that, God does God does great things. Now, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the the proclamation element of, of sharing our faith, because we were reading, I was reading an article to get ready for this, this podcast. And it was talking about different approaches to, to evangelism and, and, and examples like this are all over the place. And I, and I've heard them for years, but a guy was saying how he really feels like a great way to evangelize uh, the best place to do evangelism is to go to a bar and at the bar with his buddies, he'll have one drink well, everyone else will have four or five and they will see things that are, they will see that he is different and they will want to ask him why he is different. Now, there are some things I like about that perspective, but I'm also going to critique it a little bit. Number one, I love the idea of just be where the people are. Fantastic. Yes. Love it. Love the heart. Very to Jesus-like. For sure. hundred percent. Love, love the idea of you want to reach your friends and you know, the right way to do it is to be where they are fully with that. Love the idea that you recognize as a Christ follower having four or five drinks. Not a great idea. With you on that. We are good all the way, all the way up. Now, the challenge is, I just don't know that anybody who is out engaging in an activity that they enjoy is going to look at the person who is there but not engaging in the activity and say, oh my gosh, what do you have? How can I be like you? Like, <laughs> I just I don't drink less. buy that. Now... <laughs> So I don't think it's enough to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to be different and I'm going to expect people to, to ask me why I'm different. Now, I think it's, it's one thing to say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to have one drink and then I'm going to drink club soda the rest of the night or whatever. And I'm going to engage. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to talk. I'm going to, I'm going to look for open doors to have conversations and build relationships. But at some point, if it's going to be evangelism, you have to be prepared to talk about Jesus. You have to be prepared to have spiritual conversations. And I think that too often what we do is we think, well, I'm just going to go into this environment and just by being different, just by being different, that's going to like, people are going to want to come to know the Lord. Now I'm not saying that's never possible. And I'm not saying that's never happened. It can start conversations. Sure. It can, but (laughs) Different just means different. Exactly. They could be more conversations <laughs> about like, why are you weird? Yeah. <laughs> and and not in the sense of like, you're weird and I want to be like you, but you're weird and like, you just don't really fit, right? Which I just, I don't think that's our message. Awkward is not necessarily <laughs> right? leading someone to Jesus. Yeah. I don't think that's our, I don't think that's our message. Um, 
Where was I going? No, with that? no, no, no. Okay, well, hold <laughs> on, real talk. quick. Let me let me just talk about that for a second. I totally derailed you. But here's the thing: this podcast is called Engaging Culture. Yeah. This is why when we were preparing for this, this thing popped into my mind of going, "Listen, engaging culture in a million different ways is great, but we're really trying to engage culture with Jesus. The idea of being around culture and just being odd right. is not effective. Right. We have to engage. That means at some point there needs to be purposeful dialogue or purposeful action that is leading towards a point. What's the point? The glorification of God, the introducing of the love of Jesus, whatever it is. You got to, at some point, do something or say something that crosses the normal threshold of being awkward or different. Right. Well, and I think, so here's a, here here's kind of the, the flip side of all of that is I'll, I'll use a, a personal example. So uh, when I go and I uh, do my favorite hobby, which is playing pickleball, if you don't know what pickleball is, Google it, it's a sport uh, that old people play and me. But here's my point. I wish it had a better name because it always gets derailed by that. But here's the deal. That's one of the areas of my life where I interact with a lot of people who don't, who don't know the Lord and most of them know what I do. So, uh, in the course of this, you know, athletic competition, there's lots of language that gets thrown around. There's lots of cursing. There's lots of this and that, and it's friendly games, but you know, people get frustrated. Oh, totally. Uh, I don't curse when I play pickleball. I don't really curse ever, but I don't curse when I play pickleball, especially. Uh, but now I don't expect that someone's going to come up to me and say, Brian, I noticed your lack of profanity. You didn't curse, you know, like it how do I have what Jesus. you have? You know, I don't expect that. However, I recognize that if I were cursing up and down every time I made a mistake, that then if I engaged in a spiritual conversation later, that my behavior would harm my credibility. So I don't expect my uh, attempting to live in a way that is different from the culture to be enough, but I do expect it to be something that gives me credibility in the same way that, you know, being honest about line calls and playing the game fairly and being a good sport and not being a jerk and all of that. Like, I don't expect people to say, boy, I notice you never, uh, you never make dishonest calls or boy, you're always, uh, really gracious after games. You know, what's different about you? Like, I just, I think that's unrealistic because people are like that for lots of reasons, but I recognize sets a foundation, it sets a foundation, but we have to be clear. And I think, you know, we need to make sure we're clear with, with everybody else that there does come a point where words are necessary. Yes. Conversation is necessary. Yeah. Um, and so I'm going to drop a bomb on everybody. This is a challenge oh phrase, right? right? So if we're if you're taking notes, got to write this down. Uh, has your prior behavior caused the Jesus conversation to be awkward? Yeah. Right? And, and I think that was the heart of your point, right? Yeah. Are you the one making it awkward? Because if you are living for the Lord, it should be a natural conversation to have. Yeah. But if you are going, listen, I can't bring up Jesus, dude. <laughs> after what right I've after done. what I just did, like last <laughs> week, we were all hanging out. They're going to be like, uh, no, dude, you're disqualified. <laughs> um, has your prior behavior caused the Jesus conversation to be awkward? Too many of us are walking around going, I don't want to share my faith. It's too awkward. Why is it awkward? Why is it not normal? Yeah. Why is it not natural? Because the gospel is loaded in love. Kindness, compassion, freedom, and all the good, yummy, healthy stuff. Yeah. Okay, so we're going, boy, that's awkward. Uh, Is it? I don't think it should be because maybe if you're making it into some weird thing and you're like, I stuffed this tract into a man's hand that was scowling at me and that was awkward. Yeah, Yeah. it really was. (laughs) There could have been literally anything on that tract talking about literally any any subject and that's awkward. And that was awkward. So, nope, Jesus wasn't awkward. It's just a weird thing to do. It's just a weird thing to do. Please don't do that. But, um... We, we we opened up kind of this portion of the segment by by talking about fear. And I just, I want to highlight for a moment this and try to alleviate some of the fear. But first, we got to call it out, right? Yeah. You said, we got to go to words. Most of us don't out of fear. Yeah. So what do I mean by fear? So I thought of maybe five different things that we can be afraid of. Mm-hmm. Uh, first one is failure. I just don't want to do something that's not going to end up working, right? I, I, a lot of us have intense feelings of failure that failure means doom 
Yeah. Right. It's As true. opposed to failure means opportunity to learn or failure means I'm a human or failure means it wasn't God's timing or right. Yeah. Failure can mean a billion things. But for most of us, it means darkness. Yeah. And horrible things. Okay. But that's not true. Uh, some of us may fear persecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, persecution where someone's going to say, like, if I share my faith at work, I will be fired. Like, it's not even a matter of they're going to make fun of me. It's right. I will endanger my family's ability to eat because I no longer have a job. Yeah. Okay. Those are pretty rare, but they still happen. Yeah. Third one, humiliation. I think this is probably the biggest on the list uh-huh. because we have such a massive problem in our culture of wanting to look good. Everything we design in our whole lives is to look good. Yeah. Um, everything on Facebook, everything that we put, everything that we put out, it's all to look like we have our act together and everything's right. Mm-hmm. If we share our faith and they say, "Oh my gosh, you're a Christian." That's embarrassing. <laughs> right? That humiliation, whatever is tied to that, is horrific in yeah. our hearts. Yeah. Fourth one is being different. We just simply don't want to be different. We want to belong. Um, there are a lot of personalities that's harder for. Yeah. There are some personalities that own it. Uh-huh. They're different, and even if they weren't Christians, they would be different. They're the or- <laughs> they're the random spray painted rainbow hair people yeah. that just whether they're Christians or not, they're going to be different, and they think that's cool. Yep. Then there's people that are like, you know what? I want my name to be bland. I want to have my life be bland, yep. and I don't want anyone to call on me. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some of that. And then the last one I thought of was not having the right answers, mm, or you're yeah. going to do it wrong. Oh, absolutely. I, I think all those are heavy elements of fear. So can you help maybe go through that list for us and debunk some of that fear? Can you can you dissipate some of it? Some of it. Well, not all of it. Yeah, we'll see. Well, and I think that's that. Is that that's the point? That, and and the point is, there is some courage involved in this. Yes. And and courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is action in the face of fear. Yes. So so a, f- a few different just to kind of run through them is I think you know the fear of of failure and and I guess I would I would redefine what is failure to to me if if I have lived my life honestly and authentically before another person and I have shared with them about the Lord that's hard to make it a failure. There cannot be failure. I, I there. don't know that there's failure if they reject it. Um, I feel like if I am overbearing, if I'm rude, if I'm angry, there could be failure in that sense. But if I, if I am authentically and honestly sharing with a person about Jesus and they don't, they, they respond negatively in any manner, that's not failure and that's okay. But that's only because your identity is not in results. Right. Okay. If your identity is in results and they don't go for it, that's failure in your opinion. Right. My, my identity is in Christ. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't know the effect that that's going to have. I mean, they're all, I mean, I haven't looked at one of these in a while, so I don't, I don't have precise statistics to, to cite. But you hear things about how people need to hear, hear about Jesus you know, a number of different times before they make a decision. That you just might be somebody. The last one is, was seven, by exactly, the way. Okay, there you go. That number sounds familiar to me, too. So you might be number four. Yep. You know, it's not a formula, but just because somebody doesn't respond positively in a moment doesn't mean that what you had to say to them doesn't have an effect. It doesn't mean that that conversation might be part of drawing them more towards more towards God. Well, and Jesus even used the example, you're sowing seed. Yeah. I determine where it goes. Yeah. You don't fail in sowing seed. Oh, shoot. I went through <laughs> it wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I want to address just a couple of the other, other, other ones here real quick. Number uh, One of them, persecution, the idea of, of, oh, I'm going to be persecuted for my faith. I think there's a time and a place to just be smart about how you're sharing your faith and don't take the fact that maybe you might be in a, a, a pluralistic environment where being super bold and loud for Jesus is inappropriate. Like, I don't know, like we get these persecution complexes sometimes and I just don't think that's necessary. And also if you're not allowed to say the name of Jesus someplace, you're still allowed to to walk like Jesus. You're still allowed to treat people the way that Jesus would. And you just don't know the opportunities that might create for, for outside ministry, the opportunities that might create for a conversation off the clock. 
if you're in a place where you need to work within the framework of your organization, and maybe it's a public school, maybe it's a government job, you know, whatever the case may be, you can work within that framework and still do effective ministry. But uh, screaming and yelling about persecution is probably going to alienate more people than it's going to draw. Yeah. So, are you being persecuted for Jesus? Are you being persecuted for being weird? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that Jesus said, be as wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. You got to be smart about it. Yeah. And Paul knew that. Right. And then and then the uh, one I want to just touch on briefly also is, is not having the right answers or, or doing it wrong. Um, I get in my own head about this too, or at least I used to, not as much anymore, is that if I if I share about my faith that all of a sudden someone's going to ask me some obscure question that I won't have the answer to. And and a couple things. Number one, there are always going to be obscure questions that- Yep, I got one any- in Uganda. <laughs> yeah, right? Couldn't answer it. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, and I think that that's okay. But then also, most people aren't thinking along those lines. And that when we share Jesus, what we're doing is we're sharing Jesus. Yep. So, so we're starting with the idea of Jesus is God's son who died on the cross for our sins and rose to life. That, that, we, that is our message. Yep. And that there's a lot of other stuff where A, not even all Christians agree, and yep. B, that it's just simply secondary. Yes. So we don't have to be able to lay out for somebody a full scholarly systematic theology before they can come into a relationship with the Lord. We don't have to have like all of our doctrines all in a row ready to present to them perfectly in this airtight case. What we're preaching is Christ crucified. That's the message of the New Testament, the message of the scriptures. And that's where we begin. And also most people are just living their lives. They're not analyzing complex theology, waiting to ask questions about it. So I think this this fear of people having a million questions and us not, not being able to answer them, uh, number one, is largely unfounded. And number two, it's okay to not have the answers to everyone's question all the time. If anything, sometimes admitting we don't have all the answers can actually gain us some credibility, don't you think? Oh, that's huge. Um, a couple things to encourage uh, our listeners and our viewers, and that is you can have confidence in your story. It was your story. You don't have to worry, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget how I got saved. Yeah. No, you, if you got saved, you got saved. Um, and even if you don't remember all the details, that's okay too. My favorite evangelistic story in the Bible for encouragement is the man born blind. Favorite one ever. Why? Because they came up to him and they said, who's Jesus? And they started blasting him with questions. He goes, (laughs) I don't know. I was blind and now I can see. And they're like, yeah, but how did he do it? He goes, I don't know. (laughs) I was blind and now I can see. In other words, he just told the simplest form of his story, said, I'm telling you right now, from my perspective, that's not just a guy. Yep. That's the son of God. How it all works out, no clue. Yeah. What I'm telling you is I used to be like this. I am now like this. Not sure how it worked. Just happened. Do you want it to happen to you? Mm-hmm. Boom. All of a sudden, you just got everything included. But you didn't have to answer, where were dinosaurs? Well, yeah. how exactly did the earth come to be? Well, where is who made God? You know, unless you're sitting in a college room right. where they just recently had this discussion, right. nobody's going to ask you those questions. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably true. So we're getting uh, close to the end of our end of our time here, but I want to talk for a little bit about contextualization. Lance, what does what does it mean to contextualize the gospel? Because we see we see different things, and even you and I read an article in preparation for this about uh, people are concerned about the watering down of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And certainly that is possible to water down the gospel. It is. But that there's a difference between watering it down and contextualizing. What is contextualization and why does it matter? Yeah, contextualizing is the idea of making it fit the surroundings in ways that matter to them. So, for example, if you're going to um, contextualize the gospel in an urban setting, right? So you start talking through things. If all of your analogies are agriculture, that's a terrible idea, right? Like you didn't contextualize, you didn't make it fit. Um, Contextualizing means make it fit so it can be understood. So very simple. You did not change the content. You didn't, well, you did not change the core value. You did not change any of that. You just made it understandable. And that's where the church sometimes 
is like 30 years behind, yeah. right? They're like, they're being relevant to 1982. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're in 2018, and so we need to be thinking in terms and talking in terms of how does Jesus matter in 2018 and utilizing 2018 concepts and, and words and thoughts to explain the truth of the gospel. Do you see it like that? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, kind of the, the, the old classic way to say it is, I think is that the message doesn't change, but our methods do. Yes. And, and the reality of the gospel, again, that does not change the, ne- the necessity of repentance, the reality of sin, salvation by grace through faith. All of these are core elements of our message. And if we deviate from those elements, we've lost something. Yes. However, the way in which that is presented is going to vary from place to place. I mean, the the classic example is Paul at Mars Hill in the book of yes. Acts, where what does he begin? How does he begin? I perceive that you are very religious, he yep. says in this religious culture. What you proclaim is unknown, I proclaim to you is known. What is that? That is, again, that is the classic, you know, first day of comparative religion class. That is your classic example of contextualization. So as we're talking about the millennial generation, as we're talking about a world in which more and more things are online, and as we're talking about a post-Christian culture that has seen, frankly, a Christianity that tolerated racism and sexism and all of this stuff, we now have to contextualize the gospel for that environment. It's a, it's an environment that says, okay, I see your words, show me your actions. It's an environment that says, is there really any meat behind this? It's an environment that is very skeptical about objective truth because so much in our world is subjective. And I think it's so such a bummer when, for example, Christians bemoan so postmodernism, for example, oh, this world is so postmodern and that's bad. It reminds me of literally something I say to my kids when I give them directions and they start to fuss and talk back. I tell them we can do this with fussing or without fussing, <laughs> but either way, we're going to do it. It's your choice. And there'll be consequences if there's if it's with fussing, you know, in the same, it's kind of a dumb analogy. But my point is we're in a postmodern world, period. We can either contextualize and learn how to interact with it, or we can become irrelevant. Those are the choices. Whining and crying about it is not going to change anything. So, and lots of great Christian thinkers are doing tremendous work in contextualizing the gospel for the millennial generation in the postmodern world. But we need to lean more into that, and we need to be crystal clear that that is not compromising our message. Rather, it's adjusting our methods to fit a changing world. Well, uh, look at the four Gospels. Why are they different? Yeah, they were contextualized. Um, Matthew quotes Old Testament stuff. Why? He's talking to Jews. Luke doesn't. They're they're talking to two different audiences. You always adjust for your audience because they can't follow you in places they've never been. And so Paul said, I become all things to all men that I might save some. What was his whole point? His point was, I contextualize. That's what I do. I don't change the content. I change the method. And I make sure that they can understand it. Amen. So, uh, Lance, could we maybe wrap up here with just, could you share maybe a word of encouragement for our listeners, whether they're, whether their primary sphere of influence is, is work, uh, maybe it's in their home, maybe it's with other, uh, other, you know, parents, students, different environments they're in, just places that are multicultural, pluralistic, et cetera. What's maybe a word of encouragement you could share with them as they're seeking uh, to be a light for Jesus, to share their faith effectively uh, in those environments? Kind of kind of wrap all this up with, with a, an encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the core of everything you're doing is sharing the love of Jesus. That is attractive. The best way to do that is to either be friendly or develop friendships. You can't control whether or not they want to be friends with you, but you can be friendly and develop friendships. But always remember this, God saves. People don't save. No one can get saved unless God opens up their eyes. You don't know his timing, so your job is to be consistently loving and let God do the rest. Amen. Well said. 
All right. Well, thank you, Lance, for the time today. Thank you to uh, all of you for listening. And again, we created this podcast to create conversations around issues that matter. And we hope that this has sparked something for you. Maybe this content might inspire you to want to talk to some of your Christian friends about what it would look like for all of you to share your faith more intentionally and effectively. And then more than that, we hope that it inspires you uh, to live your life uh, before non-believers in a way that creates opportunities for you to share your faith uh, with courage, with love, and with boldness, and would certainly, again, encourage you to that end. I want to say thank you to our audio director, Lucian Hughes, and video director, Brennan Stewart. Great work, as always. Thanks to all of you for listening. This is a fifth Tuesday, so that means we will be back in just one week with the next episode of Engaging Culture. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.